0: ago, uh, some kids from my high school uh, met up with thousands of other students from all across Canada at Vimy Ridge in France, and they went there to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which happened, obviously, in 1917, and you can see some pictures here, and uh, it was a a really big deal for them when they got there, and uh, just as we scroll through these, we'll see uh, these are obviously not the students that I sent. These are from that day, but uh, it's not fiery. fiery? There's more pictures. You would have liked every single one of them, but... uh, (laughs) we'll just guess what was next. But uh, I actually wanted to tell you a, an interesting story about how cats won World War I. Because if I'm honest with you, uh, this is a very dog-focused church, or at least a dog-focused pastor. And every, every time I look up on that screen on, a screen on a Saturday night, he's got a picture of a puppy up there or something. So I'm gonna share with you how cats won World War I. And this is a true story, uh, that during World War I, uh, all throughout France and England, they rounded up cats and they took them to the front lines and they put them in the trenches. In total, and this is, this is an actual number, half a million cats were rounded up and taken to live in the trenches. That's 500,000 cats. And they were there mostly because of the rats, the hungry, disease-carrying rats. And so if you were a soldier, what you were really hoping for was that you could befriend some of these cats so that at night when you were sleeping, you had someone to protect you. There you go, not that cat, that's a fake picture, but the next picture, if it'll fire. Uh, is actually of a soldier with a cat in the trenches. And you see, so if not, you might wake up and you're actually being eaten as you were sleeping in the trenches there. And so they, they played that role and that was important. But the most important role they played was as an early warning system for both chlorine and mustard gas. You see, cats would notice the scent long before any of the soldiers would. So when, then, when, uh, when either chlorine or mustard gas was being used, the cats would notice this and they would all take off and they would take off by the thousands back towards the front lines and back towards the back. So if you were a soldier and you saw hundreds or maybe thousands of cats rushing towards you, you would know to put your gas mask on. But I thought what was really important about Vimy Ridge or really interesting was that during the three-day battle in April 1917, over 4,000 Germans surrendered. But also on the first day of the battle, a small group of Canadians, numbering about 20 or so, actually surrendered, not knowing how the battle would end up. And so I wonder what that would have been like, to have both surrendered and won, to have made the decision to give up the fight, but later to find out you were victorious. But If I'm gonna talk about surrendering in battle, there's there's one battle I wanna tell you about, and it's the Battle of Asian Corps that took place in 1415. And if you're having trouble picturing that, Picture knights and cavalry and on horses and and bowmen and things like that. And you see, if that battle rings a bell for you, it's probably because you learned about it in high school, not in history class, but in English class, when you studied the Shakespearean play Henry V. Does that ring a bell for any of you, Henry V? How about this? Uh, The Band of Brothers speech. Do You remember that one? Would you guys like a little sample of it? Yeah? Well, I mean, I didn't prepare anything, but uh, I could... uh, (laughs) I could give you a little rundown. Be a second here. I'd offer to let you talk amongst yourselves, but then I probably won't get you back. So sit quietly, please. And uh, here's my band of brothers. Are you ready? We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For today, he who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother be he ever so vile, this day will gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed will think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that was here upon this, St. Crispin's Day. really wasn't sure if that would go over or not, so... And I, and I memorized that completely, so um, you're, you're worth the effort. So, uh, but that's, uh, you know, the only thing I remember from Shakespeare in high school was King Lear. And that was basically a play about a crazy old man who gave really long speeches, so I didn't want to make that association for you. But the Battle of Agincourt was part of the Hundred Year War. And the Hundred Year War lasted 116 years. So... You know, historians keep these records, not mathematicians, but what would happen is raiding parties from England would travel across the channel, and they would attack small villages and towns all throughout France, and they would attack them and burn them to the ground, and then they would get back across the channel before winter came. And then the French would do the exact same thing. And so this went on every summer for 116 years. But what would usually happen is they would escape back and never have really been in a battle. And so, generations of men would be in the army and they would go to war and never really kind of face off against another army because they were kind of playing hide and seek as they traveled around. But in 1415, about 80 years into this war, um, because of a washed out bridge, the small English army of 6,000 men got trapped by the French army of 36,000. And so, they were outnumbered six to one, which reminds me of a, a similar battle that took place in the American Civil War uh, in a cornfield just outside of Philadelphia. Colonel Hiller gave a rousing speech to his men, and he said, I know we're outnumbered six to one, but I believe in you, I believe in our cause, and I think we can win this thing. And so all his men cheered, and they all ran off into battle. And a couple hours in, he looks over, and he sees one of his corporals sitting underneath an apple tree, eating an apple. He storms over in rage and says, what are you doing? We're still fighting. We need every man in this fight. And the corporal said, relax. I already got my six. Well, back to Asian Corps. Uh, The English were winning. The 6,000 were beating the 36,000, mostly due to the mud that bogged down the heavy knights of the the French cavalry. And so the French started surrendering by the thousands. There's even a story of a young boy who was just delivering arrows up to the front, who, who took several men prisoner himself. And what was interesting is, back in the 1400s, you could get rich from war, not from what the king paid you, and certainly not from robbing the poor people as you traveled throughout France, but you could get rich if you were able to capture a nobleman in battle, and you would be able to ransom him back to his family in what would be literally millions of dollars in today's money. And so if you captured a nobleman during battle, you, you didn't want to leave him unattended. So at one point during the Battle of Agincourt, Corps, about half of the English soldiers were no longer fighting. They were in the back guarding their prisoner, knowing that if they could get this prisoner back to England and ransom him, they would literally become millionaires overnight. And so this uh, led King Henry V to, for the first time that we know of in recorded history, give the order to take no prisoners. You see, it wasn't a bloodthirsty war cry. It was a practical order because he was running out of men who were actually fighting, even knowing they were winning. You see, the whole point of war is to have your enemies surrender. And so if I ask you today, when I use the word surrender, what sort of words pop into your head? You can, you can just yell it. I'm a teacher. I'm used to people, both not listening and answering. <laughs> to give up. Release. Yeah. Anyone else? Right? These, these are the words we think of. To lose, to be defeated, to give up, to, to, to um, be, be uh, overwhelmed by an enemy. And those are, those are the traditional word that, words that we would use. But I would like to suggest that in our culture, we've, we've kind of added to the word surrender. And in fact, I, can show you, I think I can show you a few images here. This one says, never give up, even if your king is dead, never surrender. I don't think they understand the game of chess, to be honest, because if your king is dead, you're not playing anymore. But, or this one for the students coming back from university. We shall write essays all night, we shall never surrender. Even this one. I don't know who this kid is, but he's all over the internet. Never give up, never surrender. And uh, for, I don't know if any of you would, would know this one. Anyone? Who's that? Corey Hart. Biggest hit of 1985, Never Surrender. Following up his even bigger hit from the year before. Sunglasses at night. There you go. Corey Hart. Fame is fleeting. Like three of you knew who he was. But uh, in 2006, the Oakland Raiders went with this slogan. They went 2-14 and 14 that year. So maybe they should have gone with this. But, I mean, we should be fair. They did win two games, so we'll go with this. Right? Surrendering in our culture always means losing. It means whatever you were trying to do, you failed. Webster's Dictionary, and if it wasn't for sermons and graduation speeches, we wouldn't have a Webster's Dictionary. But Webster's Dictionary says this. It defines surrender using the same words that we did, but it also gives a more traditional meaning. To give oneself up. Into the power of another, or to stop struggling and submit to another's authority, and I like that one. To stop struggling and submit to another's authority, but to me, the perfect definition of struggling is canoeing in a storm. I, uh, Candace, and I went to backwoods camping in Algonquin for our honeymoon, and if that you know you might laugh at that, but it cost two hundred twelve dollars total, and uh, we're not even Dutch, so I mean it was a it was a, it was a it was meant to be a fun. Get away. We would see no other people for the whole time we were gone, and it would just turn into this whole comedy of airs, including the first night when it rained. All the stitching in the tent disintegrated. We borrowed a 20-year-old tent from someone, and so by the second day, we had no tent. And a few days in, we said, you know what? We're going home. We were so sick of our honeymoon. <laughs> Love you. So sick of our honeymoon. We just said, we got to go home. We're sick of this. So we, we start canoeing back, and of course, the storm kicks up, and uh, we had to cross uh, Smoke Lake, if you know anything about Algonquin, it's one of the more popular lakes for people who are backwards camping. It's the last stage to get back to the parking lot. When, as soon as you dock on the other side of Smoke Lake, the parking lot's right there. And so we, uh, you know, there was a huge storm and common sense says go around the edge of the lake so that if you capsize, you're able to just like walk to shore and you'll, you'll be safe and of course, we just straight through the middle of the lake. Right into the wind, right under the white caps and it took us three hours to get across that three-mile lake that had taken us less than an hour when we first arrived. And I mean, we knew what it was to struggle. If You stop paddling for a second, you're going backwards. And, you know, Jesus' disciples had a similar experience in John 6. And starting in verse 16, if you have it or if not, it'll be on the screen. It says, that evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got on the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. They called out to him, don't be afraid. But he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. And they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. And so the disciples are struggling against the storm to get across that sea. But as soon as they let Jesus take over, the struggle ended. Pete Briscoe refers to that as the moment you decide to invite Jesus into the boat. And you can apply this teaching to a number of areas, such as not being afraid or not worrying or trusting in the goodness of God. But what I wanna talk about is how surrendering, giving up the struggle and submitting is the key to living the abundant life that God wants us to have. To be just like those guys at Vimy Ridge who surrendered and yet were victorious. Because so many of us in our walk with Jesus, we don't feel victorious. And that may be because many of us have never fully surrendered to his will. Because God promises us something. He says that once we accept his grace-filled offer of forgiveness and relationship with him, then we will be transformed. We've used this verse a lot lately, and I want to use it again. Romans 12:2 2 it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, the way you learn, oh, sorry, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You know, Mark often talks about a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly as part of this process, but I'll be honest with you, I I hate butterflies. They kind of freak me out. So I always think about a, a tadpole becoming a frog. You know, it's just, it's not the same that it once was. I mean, it was basically a fish. It had gills and a tail and it's swimming around, and then suddenly it's sitting on the side with four legs breathing air. It's a transformation. Salvation may happen in a moment, but sanctification, that transformation can take a lifetime. Because God invites us to experience life as he intends it. John in his gospel refers to it as an abundant life. Life as God intended it to be. I can tell you that the most common things I hear from the youth in our community is this idea that maybe they're not really saved. Because they say, I don't feel changed. I don't feel God in me. I feel as though I still struggle with the same sin and selfishness all the time. And what may be the most profound thing I've ever heard anybody say came from the mouth of a young guy still in his teens who said, sin is not really a struggle in my life, but I wish it was. He was talking about this idea that in his life, he didn't feel like he was battling sin. He felt overwhelmed by it. And so it becomes a little bit like those few soldiers at Vimy Ridge thinking it was a lost cause, surrendering, although the battle would be won. First Thessalonians 5.23 says this, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. When I think of the word holy, I don't really know how to define it sometimes. When I think of holy, I think of something like this. Some Old Testament kind of old-fashioned idea, but holy refers to how we're supposed to live. Holiness is the goal of sanctification. In fact, in the NIV version of this verse, instead of saying make you holy in every way, it uses the word sanctification. It says to sanctify you through and through. But I also think it's interesting that here in verse 23, it refers to our spirit and our souls and our bodies. It's three separate things. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important to be able to picture this. So please remember, this is just a sketch we're going to use. It's not, uh, it's not uh, meant to be. It's, it's trying to show something very complicated in a very simple way. But uh, if we were to label this, we would simply label, label the center as our spirit. The next ring would be our soul. And then finally, we would have our body. And really what we can do is we can take that word soul there and we can kind of split it into three parts. It's our, our, it's our mind, our will, and our emotions. That's kind of the essence of who we are, the things we think, the things we feel, and the way we, way we make decisions, the way we act. And, um, you know, although it's a simple sketch, it kind of reminds us that um, if we start in the middle of this circle where we have the word spirit, I can show you what happens at the moment of conversion. The exact second you accept Christ, Your spirit is instantly changed. And Ephesians 2, 1 says, from death to life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised us, when raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that we can be saved. It's telling us that because of God's great love for us, he has made us alive in Christ. Our sin has put us to death, but Christ has raised us again. Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So if I live in the earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, it's telling us that we've been crucified with Christ and that Christ now lives in us, in our spirit, and that our old spirit has passed away. It's gone. It's been replaced by the spirit of Christ. That's why we could put a cross in the center of that. And then what we're told is that we're transformed from the inside out, from the new spirit of Christ living within us, that's the power that changes who we are. That's the power that changes the decisions we make and the emotions we feel and, and the, uh, the things that we think. And we so often do it backwards. For so many people, myself included, we kind of think our emotions should run everything. And that the mo- whatever emotion we're feeling, we just have to go with that emotion. And it's, it's not what the Bible's telling us. You see, he, sorry, he transforms the way we think, but he also transforms the decisions we make and the emotions that we feel. And so we often reduce uh, this transformative power. We often reduce that down to a list of do's and don'ts. So we kind of think, I, I should do this, I shouldn't do this, I should do this, I shouldn't do that. And it becomes all about obedience. And let's be honest, that list is usually about the don'ts, right? Things you shouldn't be doing. And the problem with reducing God down to a list like that Excuse me, is that it's all about you. It's all about you and your best efforts to earn God's approval rather than allowing Jesus to transform who you are. And if we go back to First Thessalonians 5 for a second and see what it says after verse 23, we'll do verse 23 first again. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until your Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Verse 24 says, God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. I love this part. This is God's job. God will make this happen, and will he? Yes, because he's faithful. That's his role, and that's his promise, because that's his work. But I'd like to suggest that we have a role to play as well, that for God to do this good work in us, we have to surrender. We have to surrender our will to his. And it's choosing daily to trust Jesus. It's asking Jesus into the boat to stop struggling so we can surrender, because he can and he will if we'll let him. And what I like to do with the, for a few minutes is, is talk about Jonah. And you may wonder, well, why Jonah? Besides, he was spent some time in the boat as well. But, uh, because Jonah, for me, is a great example of what so many of us do when it comes to surrendering. And I, I wanted to read the entire book of Jonah to you, but apparently I have like five minutes left. So uh, we're going to summarize it. We're going to summarize it. But I realize that I don't need to summarize it for you because I'm sure you know most of the story of Jonah. And so let's do it this way. I'm going to read through this little fill-in-the-blank summary, and you're going to give me the answers. All right? So Jonah was a prophet. Very good. And one day God told Jonah to get off of his couch. We're in church, guys. Couch. And go to the great city of Nineveh. Very good. When he got there, he was supposed to announce God's wrath, judgment on the people. Jonah instead hopped on a ship heading to... All the veggie tail people are nailing this, which was in the opposite direction. But then God sent a huge, I heard some whales, not that, storm. A huge storm that threatened the ship and its entire crew. In a panic, the crew asked Jonah what his deal was, and he told them that he was running from God. That's right. After a little more discussion, Jonah told the crew to throw him, and the storm instantly subsided. However, because our God believes in second chances, God arranged for Jonah to be swallowed by a giant whale, whale fish. Where somebody last night said squid, I'm like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not gonna argue. Yes, fine. Uh, then he where he spent three days and three nights. I love there, it says there, God arranged for Jonah. I actually took that right from Scripture. I just I, I just, I don't know, I just imagine God, like, with his smartphone, like, he's ordering an Uber ride or something, right? He's, like, punching all this in, saying, I, you know, I need a big fish just south of Cyprus, uh, you know, number of passengers, just one, just Jonah, and, uh, you know, oh, I have a Groupon for that, you know. He, uh, it's, just, it's an interesting use of the word, he arranged. But it's a perfect example of how not to surrender to God. God says to do this, so I'll literally do the opposite. And I get it, because as a prophet, it was a tough job. It's kind of like being in the special forces of doing God's work, you know. Prophets were sent into difficult places and difficult situations, and they had to deliver a message that nobody wanted to hear. You know, a message that nobody wanted to hear. You know, we have, we have a name for people like that now. We call them the in-laws, right? <laughs> Here comes the in-laws, and they're, I'm really excited to hear all the things that I'm doing wrong. Um, but uh, on advice of counsel and Canis' reaction from last night. I won't tell you a story about my father-in-law, but uh, it's... Um, I'm just kidding. It's, it's really easy to pick on your in-laws and, and kind of fun, too. But, uh, but every once in a while, God sends someone into our lives who says, listen, this is none of my business, but I have to tell you something. And then when they tell you and you listen, you really think about it. You say, you know what? You're right. That is none of your business. <laughs> And so being a prophet is tough, and I get that, but especially tough to be a prophet who is heading to the great city of Nineveh in Assyria because, in fact, the Assyrians were famous for one thing and one thing only. What they would do to anybody who they had captured uh, or who were in jail, they would skin them. They would skin them alive, and then they would brag about how long they could keep someone alive once they'd done this. And if Rome was famous for crucifixion, then Nineveh was famous for this. And so I get why Jonah was not thrilled with his mission, so he ran but God sent a storm, but God also sent a fish. So now Jonah is enjoying his accommodations in the belly of the whale, which couldn't have been very pleasant. You know, it's not like saying somewhere nice like the Super 8, or the Super 8. Uh, No, Candace told told me that would fail every time and she's been right, but uh, for all of Jonah chapter two, Jonah's praying from inside the belly of this great fish. He's promised, he's this entire prayer Promising to obey God. I'm gonna read the whole thing to you. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to you, Lord, in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me, I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. The seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, you snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to him in in your holy temple. But Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies, but I will offer sacrifice to you, with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all of my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Bob were would have said amen right there. This is Jonah. Imagine, from inside the fish. This is what he's saying. Now, that, that, that's such a prayer. And so when given a second chance, Jonah obeys God. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches in the streets, and much to his surprise, the people start repenting. In fact, the king calls for a national day of repentance throughout the city. And so Jonah lifts his hands up towards heaven and gives the glory to God. No, that's not what happened, is it? What happened to Jonah? He got mad. He got angry. It's a, the word is similar to like a righteous anger. He was angry. And Jonah's basically saying this. He says, you know what? I, uh, I, I knew it. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. You know, God, you always do this. You promise destruction and then you bail. You know, I don't think you're tough enough to be in charge up there. Now, you think I'm exaggerating. Let me give you what he actually said. This is Jonah. Just think about this for one second. This is Jonah speaking to God. Jonah, the guy who's just spent three days inside of a fish before being, I'll say, spit up onto dry land. That's the nice way to say it. Speaking to the creator of the universe. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. It was God's fault. I knew you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn your back from destroying people. Just kill me now. Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Easy, Jonah. Here's Jonah. He does something very interesting. So he's just complained to God. He's just complained to God about his terrible decision to spare over 100,000 people. And so as he does this, he makes this complaint. What does he do? I guess he goes home right? It's over. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't go home. He goes up onto a hill overlooking the city to see if God is still going to destroy Nineveh. But God just finished saying, I'm not going to. I'm going to spare these people because they have repented. And so why would he go up there? Why would he go up there and wait to see if they'll be destroyed? And the reason is this, because he's waiting to see if his complaint has changed God's mind. He wants to see if his will, Jonah's will, is going to trump God's will you see, Jonah obeyed God and did what he said, but he didn't surrender to the will of God. The will of God was to see the people of Nineveh spared, to see them brought into relationship with God. And instead, Jonah wanted them to be condemned. So that leads us to a question. Did Jonah not really mean it? I mean, I just read you the prayer, right? Was that the experience in the whale talking? Because if I'm in the belly of the whale, I'm going to say some stuff. I'm going to say pretty much anything I think will get me spit out of that whale. And you know, I did a lot of reading about Jonah. And the more I kept reading, the more I read about how Jonah's prayer must not have been sincere. Because when we see the Jonah of chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see such an unchanged heart. But that's not how I read that prayer. And that's not my experience with God. You know, in my life, when I sin, I don't pray for forgiveness and secretly not mean it. And then God falls for it because he's kind of gullible. And then basically I go around gleefully sinning again um, until the next time that I feel maybe I should be forgiven. No, what sounds, what sounds uh, real to me, and, and, and tell me if this sounds familiar to you, I sin and then I pray for forgiveness and I really mean it. But then I stumb, uh, stumble and struggle because the transformation in me is not yet complete. And that rings true to me. That's what I think what really happens to Jonah is he falls into this trap that so many of us do that he believes the goal of obedience is obedience, goal of obedience is not obedience. The goal of obedience is to bring us in a right relationship with God and allow us to be transformed into the image of his son. So when we believe that the end goal of our obedience as that we'll just become more obedient, we miss out on that transformative power. And what we end up doing is simply, simply becoming better rule followers, and it's in our strength and in our time because it's our will. Remember what we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24? Whose job is it to transform us to become more like Christ? God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. But what I want to finish with today is I want to finish at the foot of the cross with something that many of us maybe have never kind of thought about before. And the thing I was reading that I found really interesting is where Rome would place these crosses. You see, they were meant as a threat and a warning to people under Roman rule that this is what happens when you defy Rome but they were meant to be viewed close up. They weren't put on the top of a little hill for people to see from a distance. You were meant to come face to face. They're not meant as a symbol from afar. You were meant to come face to face with the horror of that crucifixion. So although we know that Jesus was crucified on a hill, we also know that the cross would have been placed only a few feet from a well-traveled road. And Rome did this for a very specific psychological reason. You see, Rome was telling people to get close to come face-to-face and eye-to-eye with that man on the cross. Because I guarantee you, if you came face-to-face with someone dying on a cross, you'd never forget it. And Rome was sending a message. Here's what happens when you defy Rome. Here's what happens when you refuse to bow your knee to Caesar. Well, there was a far greater kingdom sending a message that day, the kingdom of God. And I believe, though, that we are called to come face-to-face and eye-to-eye with Jesus on that cross also. Because what Jesus did for us isn't just some story that we share to explain how we've been saved. It was the Savior of the world, beaten and whipped, punched and spit on before dying on a cross. And if you ever truly can come to the foot of that cross, I'll guarantee you that you'll never forget it. Because the cross is personal. It's God's grace and God's forgiveness extended to you. You know, the way you measure the value or the worth of something is what is somebody willing to pay for it. So look at what Jesus was willing to pay for each of us. And if you ever doubt your worth or that Jesus loves you, just think about one thing. Think about what he's paid for you. Because there's nothing that you could ever do in your life that is more powerful than that cross. There's nothing. So come face-to-face and eye-to-eye with Jesus on that cross and surrender. Because despite what we think we know about surrendering, when we stop struggling to impose our will over God's will, we can have victory to surrender so that we can win. And because he can, and he will, if we'll let him. Can I pray for you guys? Lord, what can I say? There's 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 no words that describe how we feel about what you've done for us on the cross. I mean, I say thank you, but it just doesn't seem enough. But it's it's really all I have. I just, Lord, I just, I think about what you, what you have sacrificed for us. And that what you ask is for our benefit. What you ask is that we enjoy the life that you've created for us. Enjoy this abundant life, Lord. But to do that, we just have to surrender. We just have to know that you are greater than we, that you are the creator of the universe and that what you've paid for us is so, so much we can't even comprehend it, Lord. And just to sit down before you and just say, I surrender, Lord. I give to you what is yours and that's my life because I was dead in my transgressions but now I'm alive because of you. Lord, I just pray this week, Holy Spirit would just poke and prod uh, uh, some of us, all of us, Lord, just to to think on that, Lord, to think about what it is that we're holding back what it is that we, we're keeping control of because we just don't trust you enough to give it to you. And Lord, I just ask that we would surrender. And then when we do, Lord, we know that you're faithful. We know that what will follow will just be this amazing transformation. And for that, Lord, we're just so thankful. I just pray for the rest of our morning, Lord. Uh, just love being here. Love this church, Lord. Just uh, that everybody would have an opportunity to just have some fellowship, share our lives together, Lord, and just always pointing that glory back to you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.